out early. I did not say we will get out early. I've, I've learned that over and over again. So Genesis 16, uh, we'll stop at the sixth verse um, and pick up where we left off last week. Um, and remember the, the pattern that we see with Abraham and, and some of the others, and, and that is that with great moments of faith come moments of failure. And these triumphs lead to, to falls. And Genesis just illustrates this over and over again. But again, it's not just Genesis. One really good example of this is the prophet Elijah. It is immediately after he defeats the prophets of Baal and Ashtaroth, he is hiding in a cave wishing God would take his life. Uh, and and so, so he goes to this great literal mountaintop experience. To He's hiding in darkness, fearful of his life that he wishes that would just end. Scared to death of the queen he just conquered. Um, so, so this is consistent in the Bible. I think it's consistent with, with our experiences, that mountaintop experiences often followed by uh, temptations of failure and, and whatnot. And so Abraham has that moment of faith in chapter 15. He has this moment of failure along with his wife in chapter 16. And one of the interpretive keys we, we, we want to look at is there are patterns that connect Abraham to the Garden of Eden. So when you see these patterns, and the writer of Genesis does this over and over again, wants you to see that the story of the Garden of Eden is the story of humanity, uh, the heroes and the losers of, of history. And so what we have here is Abraham and Sarah, husband and wife, the first parents of the nation of Israel, the Adam and Eve, if you will, of the nation of Israel. They are, they are standing at a tree. This is a place of temptation. Will they eat of the fruit like our first parents, or will they turn away? And what we discover is they make the same mistake as our first parents. And out of this comes um, generation after generation of hostility that is still with us today uh, between the uh, Jewish people and the Arab people. If only they were fighting right now in the news, and I could really make a, a modern connection. But they're not, you know, but no, obviously they, they are. And... Um, bombing each other and using innocent people as props and shields and, um, and everything else. So, uh, remind you of, of this pattern we, we see in, in this chapter, because the Bible's a really well-written story, if you would read it as a really well-written story. And, and so you read it slow, you, you'll find this. So, we, we see that it opens, Sarah has no children, it ends with uh, Hagar has a child. So, Abram has no children, in verse 1, he has a child at the very end. Likewise, after that, you, you get this, this, this year period. Uh, so we'll see it when, when we get into verse 3. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll see there, there at the end the time that has passed. And those times are very important in, in the narrative. And then right there in, in the middle is, is Hagar finally has this son. Because that's the climactic hope of the story of Abraham is a line, lineage, and land. And finally, we, we get that, that lineage. That, that line is starting with here. But come and find out it went about the, the wrong way. Much in the same way again in Genesis 3, you will be like God. That's the promise the serpent gives. Now, the hope was that if you are patient and God continues to reveal himself to you, you will become more like him. But they took a shortcut and ate of the forbidden fruit. So too, Abraham and Sarah, they take a shortcut in order to, to have that promise fulfilled. So that was the proposal we saw last week, right? Um, uh, Sarah... Um, uh, offers this, this solution to the problem. She knows she's beyond 
the ability to have children and gives to, to Abraham. And you remember the language there, I believe it, it is in, um, I believe it's in verse 2, um, yeah, that Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. It's the same language again in Genesis 3, that Adam listened to the voice of his wife. And there's nothing wrong with listening to your wife's voice, right? The issue is that when you are given foolish advice, you who claim to be wise should see it as foolishness. Now, later, I pointed this out last week, there's a story where the man should have listened to the woman's voice. So this isn't a gender issue. It has to do with the wisdom and, and foolishness. So let's start with verse 3 with the uh, repugnance here. Verse 3, we get that time stamp. Um, so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So there's the timestamp, right? Abram was 75 when he received the promise. So that means, you, you seniors, that will mean God's done with you, right? Retirement in the legal system doesn't mean retirement in the spiritual system, right? Moses was 80 before he actually did anything worthwhile. You think about it, 40 years, he's hanging out in the palace, Eating grapes. I guess that's all the Egyptian princes did. And the next 40 years, he's out in the wilderness, uh, which I'm starting to think that's the best way to live. That's better than the palace at this point. It's not until he's 80 that he actually does something with his life. He goes and conquers nations and starts a nation and, and conquers other nations, right? I mean, he's, he's 80 doing that stuff. That's, that's a, what's our excuse, right? Um, and here Abraham's 75 when he receives the promise. And now it's been 10 years. So, in, so there's a 10-year period between chapter 12 and chapter 16. So a lot of time has passed. And in that 10 years, he has fought battles. He's moved his family multiple times. Uh, he must be a Methodist minister, right, having to move all the time. And uh, uh, think about it. He's going to war, what, his late 70s, early 80s, right? I mean, uh, what are you doing with your life, right? I mean, <laughs> come on. Uh, retirement, what, what is that? Uh, that's the, this is the dream life of my father, I think. You know, he's, he's 68. He's thinking, you mean to tell me 10 years from now I can go to war still, right? right? And God wants me to do that? Yeah, that's the life. But it's, it's a time stamp, right? The reader sees this and says, if 75 years was impossible, 10 years later it's even more impossible. That's our response. Uh, and, and so when he does get pregnant, particularly with Isaac, it makes, it makes the miracle more emphatic. And it makes it very clear only God could have done this. So, so we've said before that on the one end, God is always late in the Bible. At the other end, God is always on time in the Bible. And the best example of this is probably the raising of Lazarus. Remember that, that Jesus gets uh, a text that says, your, your friend Lazarus is about to die. You need to show up and do something about it. You remember what he does? He goes back to bed, right? <laughs> I mean, he's, he goes back to playing golf, whatever it is he was doing. And he shows up four days after he's dead. Okay? Not four days after he started showing symptoms. Four days after he's dead. And the reason that is, is that there was the belief at the time that the spirit, those who believed in the spirit, like the Sadducees didn't believe that, but those who believed there was a spirit uh, would hover around the body for, for three days. And on the fourth day would ascend into Sheol, Hades, or the afterlife, whatever. So Jesus shows up on day four so that when he raises Lazarus from the dead, no one can claim, well, his timing was just perfect. Right? He was going to come back from the dead anyways because his soul was there. No, soul's gone. There is no explanation for how this happened. 
So the reader is seeing that this is becoming more impossible. Um, Tolkien uh, liked to describe, uh, use a term called eucatastrophe. Um, Do you know if I'm right on this, brand? Is it eucatastrophe? I don't know. You're like, you're like the most Tolkien person that we've got here other than me. So, so I don't have to rely on you on this. I don't know if you know Miss Mary. I think it's called eucatastrophe. So if you read Tolkien's writings, he, he gets his story to the point of impossibility. Right, so so uh, Frodo, so Frodo gets to to the edge of Mount Doom. He could throw the ring in. What does he do? He puts the ring on, and he's going to walk out of Mount Doom. Right? It bring it, it brings to this point of the enemy won. Right? And 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 what he does is he he wants to bring it so that when something happens, the reader says that's a miracle. So in the Tolkien story, like the eagles serve as that sort of purpose. Right. Um, and so in the movie, when the, the hobbits look up, uh, uh, Mary and Pippin say, the eagles, right? The, the viewer, the reader is supposed to say, a genuine miracle happened here because there's no way they were going to win. That was Tolkien's way, right? That's what the Bible's doing here. So it's been 10 years. And so if he's going to conceive with his wife, it will be a eucatastrophe. It, it will be an impossibility. And there's that language we already talked about it there in verse 3. Um, uh, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. The language is very odd here. Two things to note here. One, the language of the garden. We, we've talked about this, so, so we don't need to belabor. Uh, Abram took, or she, she took her husband, or her servant, and gave to her husband. That's the same thing Eve takes of the fruit and gives it to her husband. It's the same language even in the Hebrew, not just in English. Right? That's on purpose. It's the same story. But you also notice it says, Sarai, Abram's wife, Abram's wife yeah, um, uh, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, <laughs> gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, I don't know if you've ever studied writing, Okay, um, but can I give you some? I'm, I'm not the best writer in the world, but I can, I can give you probably the best writing advice I've ever come across. Here it is: don't use unnecessary words. Okay, this is why um, when I was like in third grade or something, we did uh, it was called K I R S testing, K E R S testing, whatever it was. And it was basically you writing essays, and our teachers would say, "Write like you talk." Well, we were all country bumpkins from Moyne County. And the next year when we came back to school, the teacher said that was terrible advice. Don't write like you talk because y'all don't know how to talk. You know, because we're like, I ain't going to do it wrong. That's the way we're writing. So we got to learn some, 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 some grammar here. Well, there's a, re- right? there is a difference between the way you talk and the way you write. Even if you talk right, uh, you don't want to write like that. Okay. Uh, well, one of the things is, is when you talk, you use unnecessary words. Podcasters and radio talk show guys are the worst at that uh, because they make a living at filling airtime with words. So they and and women who who come home from shopping are terrible at this because they got to tell you the whole story. That's my experience. Anyways, um, uh, less words. So so you want to say more with less. That's good writing, right? So so it's clarity, but it's brevity. This is a terrible example of this. Right? It's Sarai, his wife. We already knew they were married. They were squabbling in the first two verses. We got that. How many times have we been, we've been told that they're married? Okay. Uh, Hagar, the Egyptian. We already know the Egyptian. You can read that in verse 1. 
And it, it implied all the way back to chapter 12. We know where she's coming from. We saw that last week. The Egyptian, her servant. Well, we knew that in verse 1. Well, why are you telling us this? Obviously, she's a servant if she's associated with the servants that Abraham and Sarah inherited from Egypt. You don't need this information. Took Hagar, her servant, uh, to Abram, her husband. Well, if Sarai is Abram's wife, Abram, now you follow me here, must be Sarai's husband, right? You got, I mean, do you need this information at all? I don't think you do. And then it adds that he received her and took her as his wife. That's not true, is it? They married. That's what the term means. They're not married. Yet that's what the text says. Legally, in ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, it's understood that this is a surrogacy. We talked about commercial surrogacy last week in, in some uh, detail and the ethics of it. But in the theological sense, we're still in the book of Genesis, aren't we? How does the Bible define marriage? Not as a certificate recognized by a judge, but as a covenant recognized before God. And what is the binding experience between a husband and wife? It is that the two become one flesh. And so we see here another Adam and Eve. And what are they doing? They're violating another covenant. In this case, it's the covenant of marriage. So remember, the pattern is one becomes two, and that two become one, and that one become many with a family. And then as that many eventually become one in their diversity in a society. Well, God's doing that again. He takes one, Abraham, has two with Sarah. So now they're one. And the goal is this one will become many. And through that many, they will have unity in, in, in their diversity under the banner of, of, of Yahweh, right? That's, 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 the, that's the vision of Abraham. He's a new Adam. The problem is, like Adam, he's making the same mistake. This time through the means of bigamy. In the eyes of God, because they are intimate together, it's like they're married. Don't, don't overlook this, because we've lost this as a culture. Go to any youth group at any conservative uh, evangelical church in America today and, and, and say that intimacy prior to marriage makes you married. You just can roll, roll your eyes. All right? But theologically, that's the case. I'll, I'll never forget, there was a, a young lady who was in love with this guy. They were dating, they were in high school, they were intimate, and uh, they broke up. And uh, she calls me. I mean, just, just, just tore up about it. Just tore up. Like, way too much tore up. Right? Maybe I'm just getting old, but, and I don't miss high school. But um, I lucked out that I, I married the girl from, from high school. Like, that should probably be rare, I'm guessing, right? <laughs> I mean, mostly because you're the one that's immature, not just them, okay? Uh, but I lucked out there. And boy, am I glad, because I don't know. Do you ask people for numbers now, or, or is it like... TikTok username. How, how do you, how do you, do? I don't know. Anyways. Um, and I remember saying, can I tell you what your real problem is? You want them back because you're one flesh. And here's what's going to happen is the first guy that winks at you, you're going to give into the same temptation and you're going to give him everything because you think he's your savior. And guess what happened? A few months later, guy winks at her. They're intimate. And guess what happened? They broke up. Calls me. Why, why, you know, all this, what's wrong with me? I'm a terrible person. I'm ugly. Why wouldn't they accept me? All this sort of stuff. Like, I told you this was going to happen. And guess what's going to happen? Next guy that winks at you, 
right? Until eventually, you, 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 you're going to get in a situation you can't get out of. Theologically, you see this one flesh relationship is made very, very clear here. Now, what is striking is, this is, I think I mentioned this last week, this is not the first example of bigamy in Genesis. The first example is Lamech of Genesis chapter 4. Remember this guy, Lamech. Lamech took, notice that word, took, right there. Where does the first time we see, or one of the first times we see the word took in Genesis? Genesis 3, Eve took of the forbidden fruit. Now we have a man, a husband, but of the line of Cain, he takes for himself two wives. The, the command is one wife, but he takes for himself two wives. Name one, Ada and Zillah, we talked about them. Now notice, he says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Notice, voice. Before, it was, you listen to the voice of your wife. Right? And a good thing. Now, he's saying, listen to my voice. You, wise of Lamech, listen to what I say. And what is he? He's justifying murder. So we're to say to, to these two wives, don't listen to his voice. The problem is listening to voices like that. The problem is listen to voices like Eve and listen to voices like Lamech and listen to voices like Sarai. Now, this is foolishness. You should be listening to the voice of God. That, and we looked at some of that last week, I, I believe. So what you have then is Abraham is now likened to Lamech in the narrative. What he's doing is he's taken on two wives, not legally, not in the eyes of the law. Remember, in the eyes of the law, the child they produce will be Abraham and Sarah's through surrogacy. But in the eyes of God, this is what really matters. He has taken for himself a bride, illegitimately. And he's making a victim out of a slave who was already oppressed. And I think, as we said this last week, I think Hagar is the first slave, at least by name, we, we meet in the Bible. And she is oppressed, she is victimized, she is abused. It's almost like that's the problem with the institution. But what do I know? I'm a southerner. So, um, okay, verse, verse 4. Uh, he went into Hagar and she conceived... When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And there's a lot here. First of all, this, you see this verse broken down in two parts. First of all, Hagar conceives. That is to say, the plan works. In the eyes of the law, this is a good thing. This is what, this is what they wanted, right? They're helping God out, and sometimes you've got to help God out. You know, he has his limitations. And, and so it, it worked. What does Sarah want more than anything? Is what we said last week. She wants to have a child. Because infertility was great shame in that culture. She wants to have a child. She has one. She will adopt this child in the eyes of the law. It will be hers. Hagar's nothing but a slave, a surrogate mother who really cares about her. They have a child. The thing she's wanted more than anything, she was willing to do anything to get. And I can't imagine anything bad coming as a result of this arrangement. Can you? Look, I've watched a lot of daytime talk shows in my life Nothing bad could ever come of this situation. I am on Twitter all the time. And I'll tell you, nothing bad can come of this drama. Uh, I, I, was, I was at a, a doctor's office the other day, and they had a soap opera on. Let me tell you, 
those, those shows, nothing dramatic or awful ever comes out of those shows. The characters love each other. They get along. No one stirs any trouble. I live in, in, in a neighborhood. Let me tell you, we all get along. Nothing bad ever happens, right? This is what a boring story this is because they get their child. Everyone is just happy. Hagar is grateful that she got to serve her masters this way, and they all live happily ever after. Let's pray. No, of course, that's not what happens at all. Now, you can predict, if you know nothing else about this story, if you stopped halfway into verse 4, you can predict what happens. When Abraham and Sarah can't conceive, the cause, the, the, the medical cause, remains a mystery, right? Is it more on Abraham's side, or is it more on Sarah's side? You're not going to know. Now, in the engineering's culture, the woman always gets the blame. The wife is always blamed for this. That's unfair. That's not right. Yes. But let's talk as Americans, 21st century. We know usually uh, one or the other is more likely medically have, having the, the issue, right? Okay. Now, if you're Abraham and Sarai, you've been trying and trying for decades. Abraham then goes to, and is with another woman. They conceive, and the text almost sounds as if it's instantly, right? Now whose fault is it? It wasn't Abraham's fault. It must be Sarah's. Now, if your entire identity is tied up in the engineering culture and being a mother, and in an instant, your husband proved you were the problem, and the slave girl proved that you were the problem, you got what you wanted. But did you get what you wanted? I mean, you don't have to know anything else about this story. You can already tell how this goes. Let me see if I can illustrate this. You know, I, I, I love the coach. Enjoy it because I, I love the sport, you know, of soccer, football, for those who here might be from Europe. And um, there's one, of the, one of the fears of coaching, and I've watched sports all my whole life, is, is if I'm coaching a team, and let's say we lose every game, I can say, you know what, we got better as the season went on. We improved. I'm proud of, proud of the, the players. Better luck next time. But let's say we get halfway through the season and I quit coaching. You know, whatever. For whatever reason. My assistant coach comes in and they start winning games. What am I? What is everyone else going to start thinking? Problem with these boys is that first coach. You do this too because every season... You're wanting to fire the coach or whatever team you're rooting for. Right, Kentucky fans? No. Right? Nine wins. I tell you what, this is unacceptable. I don't care what he's done in the past. That's it. All of a sudden, Kentucky fans don't like one of done players. <laughs> uh, whatever. But, um, right? We do this all the time. Right? And we like to see coaches who get that early coaches bump, right? This is something that happens in soccer all the time. Is you, you got players who are just sort of giving up. But then when the new guy comes in, everyone wants to impress them. And so you get this co new coaches bump, right? And they start to play better. We love seeing that. And everyone starts to say, see, the problem was the coaching. Never mind the players. But the problem was the coaching, right? Now, put yourself again in Sarah's shoes. Now everyone knows she's the problem. What do you think is going to come out of that? How do you think Sarah is going to view her slave? Not with equality, not with appreciation, not with love with hatred. If you're Hagar and you're nothing but an Egyptian lowly slave taken from your home robbed of your freedom and your master comes in and says I'm going to force you to be with my aging husband 
and you're going to bear me a son, and I'm going to take that child from you, and you'll never see him again. And you conceive. You don't even have to try very hard. What are you going to do for nine months? Oh, Abraham, would you like to feel the kick of your son? Boy, he's really active, Abraham. Excuse me, Sarah, I need to go talk to your husband. He's really kicking today. Sarah, will you go get me some grapes and, and some shade? I'm just really wore out today. Morning sickness was, was just awful, I tell you. Being pregnant, you wouldn't understand this, but being pregnant is really tough in the middle of the desert. Oh, Abraham, I know it's the middle of the night, but I could really use something to drink, and I just can't get up. You know, the doctor says I got to lay down. Don't want to risk you losing your only child. You know, the child that Sarah couldn't get you for 85 years. Oh, Abraham, you think any of this would happen? Obviously, this is what would happen. Anyone ever been to high school? You never leave high school. This is exactly what is going to happen. And that helps us understand why the end of verse 4 happens. It says, when she saw that she had conceived. Now, notice the language of seeing and looking. We're back to the garden, isn't it? Because it's Eve saw that the fruit was good. It will make her wise in her own eyes. She took, she sees and looks. She looked with contempt on her mistress. Notice that Sarai's success, her greatest success is now her greatest failure. It's amazing, isn't it? When there is something in your life, you think, I will, I'm willing to do anything to get it, anything to get it. When you grab it, what you're going to look back and realize this is your greatest failure. Because that idol isn't a savior. So her position in the home changes. She is no longer slave. She is mistress. She is mother. She is wife. Proverbs 20. I, I came across this. I did not put it up there. That's unfortunate. Proverbs 20 says this. Under three things the earth trembles... Under four, it cannot bear up. It's not a contradiction. It's a proverbial way of, of putting things. Here's one or two of them. An unloved woman, when she gets a husband, that's the story of Rachel and Leah, right? Is it Leah who was unloved but gets a husband? Here's the other. A maidservant, when she displaces her uh, mistress. It's like Solomon was reading this story. Illegitimate relations always produce more heartache and sin. Always, 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 always. And we need to see it as this way. Uh, a good example of this is uh, this story in, in 2 Samuel. This is where uh, the son of David violates his half-sister, the daughter of David. Okay? Uh, he would not listen to her. There, there's that language of listening to the voice. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred. Now notice, the thing he wanted most was her. The person he hated the most when he got it was her. He hated her. So that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love which he had loved her. And Ammon said to her, get up, go. This is the problem with such sin is that people are dehumanized. You don't see them as humans. You see them as objects. Well, 
I can give illustrations of that, but that, that's probably enough. Genesis 19 is another example. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. This is the story of Lot at Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Well, this is horrendous. But you'll notice the thinking is these men out here are debased. I can fix it by giving them more debauchery. And they're so debased, they would rather um, go for strange flesh. It's, it's a reverse of Genesis 6. If Genesis 6 is angels coming out mixing with women, what you're getting in Genesis 19 is men mixing with the angels. Um, we'll, we'll get there in about 14 weeks. Um, now, with this story in Sodom is repeated in the book of Judges. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. They said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. The man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come to my house to do this father. I think hospitality was the highest and most important moral thing you, you could do. We've lost that today. Look, if you need something, call first, right? It's sort of the way, way we act. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and, and his concubine. Uh, let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. You see, it's, it's the same story. Now, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, they refuse the daughters. In this story, they don't refuse the daughters. The men would not listen. There's that phrase again to him. So the man sees his concubine and made her go out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night till the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Now, the rest of the story is they find her dead. She, she, she's abused to the point of death. They then take her body, the master of the house, takes her body, cuts her into 11 parts, uh, and ships those parts via Amazon, no doubt, to the other tribes of Israel. And this starts a civil war in the age of the judges. Right. And remember, the premise of judges is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what, 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 how does it, what's the climax? Solomon and Gomorrah. Repeat. But these are the people of God, supposedly. Now, put this story in with the very next book, which takes place during that timeline, story of Ruth. Where Boaz is a man of righteousness. And it just so happens... Ruth is working in his field. And it just so happens he is a kinsman redeemer. It's clearly a story about providence. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, these were Benjaminites who did this. I think I've mentioned this before. What tribe was Saul from? The tribe of Benjamin. So being that if you follow the chronology, the end of the judges comes with a civil war against the Benjaminites. And then the first king, who was a terrible human being, was a Benjaminite, do you think the writer of 1 Samuel is trying to tell us something? Yeah. Because that prepares us for a person from the line of Judah who's going to be put in much better lights. Who He himself will war against the Benjaminite and overcome him. And he will be crowned king. Story of Judges continuing. Um, so, such sin produces things like violence, envy, Anger, all of this. It's not an accident that the more, uh, the, more the revolution takes on in our society, the more violent we, we, we become. I can illustrate that in, in two ways. One of them is goofy, one of them is more serious. The first, first one, I was going through this text last week. A song kept going in my head, and I, I made a net 
listen to it because I played it on, on my computer. Let me see if I can read the lyrics, see if you pick up on it. That I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive. Yes, right. I took my Louisville, which uh, it's Louisville, okay? Took my Louisville Slugger. Man, yes. So Andy's guy. I took my Louisville Slugger to both headlights. I slashed a hole in all four tires. Maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. Now, I can't read you the, the, all the lyrics of the song, but they did make me laugh, s -s some of the, the lines of it, right? Because I was going through this like, Louisville bat, Louisville bat. Where, where that, that's about cheating, ain't it? So I Googled it. Yep, that's perfect. Now, what's the premise of the song, right? That there is, there is sin of intimacy, right? And how do we respond to that? With malice. Anger is like when you raise your voice. Malice is when you get the Louisville slugger or you start keying cars. That's malice. This is when people start chucking stuff out the front door and saying, just leave, right? And cause a big scene in the neighborhood and people get out their cameras because they plan on watching this for the next 20 years, showing their grandkids. <laughs> you remember? We lived down that street. Let me show how crazy them neighbors were, right? Right? That's malice. And it's not an accident that we have songs and history has given examples of where there is sexual sin, there will be violence and envy and malice, right? Because right now we see Sarai feeling inadequate, envious. She has a son, but it's not her son, so it's not good enough. And it'll never be her son in her eyes. Another way to illustrate this is that Hollywood's... Um, Scenes of violation is, is, is the cleanest way I can put it. Uh, statistics have shown uh, those scenes have jumped dramatically. So it's, it's ironic, isn't it, that the Me Too movement is going on in Hollywood while Hollywood is increasing the number of scenes where women are being violated. I can't make sense of that. But then again, I'm a Christian from the South. All right. um, you cannot separate sexual sin from, from the others. And they, they, it dehumanizes others. Adultery makes the partner feel inadequate. Revenge uh, uh, um, turns the partner into a means to an end um, and everything else. Uh, I'll never forget, I, I had a student at McContinent when I was a professor there. Uh, I've told you all before, I was more of a pastor than a professor because I would spend hours after class talking to students who had no pastor, had no spiritual leadership or anything. They all just had burdens to come to class. One in particular was saying, look, my daughter is in an abusive marriage. She gives in to her husband hoping that the beatings will stop. What should she do? Why would such a question even be asked? And why would she think, if I just give in, it'll stop, even though it never stopped? It's amazing, isn't it? We live in this world. Hashtag me too. And we think, and we do think that a hashtag will solve all these problems. So this tendency of conflict between the surrogate and the mistress was so common that the ancient Near Eastern law um, had uh, stipulations in, involved, it, it anticipated. In one such law, the surrogate could not live in the same house as the woman of the house. For obvious reasons, right? So if you have a surrogate, in this case, Hagar, Hagar would not be allowed in, in, in other ancient areas and culture. I don't know about Canaanite culture. She would not be allowed. Uh, so, so, so Abraham would have to build her a, a, her own house. And the two women could not see each other for nine months. Can you think of any reason why that should be? Yeah. Much in the same way, if you're in one relationship and you're in this other relationship, 
it may be a good idea in this new relationship to say, um, maybe you know my ex-girlfriend is a waitress at this place. Maybe we shouldn't go in. If you leave out that information and you take your new girlfriend to where your ex-girlfriend works, you've now got two ex-girlfriends, right? We get this, don't we? And so they were in trying to anticipate this in ancient Near Eastern law. Never mind, you should have said you shouldn't be doing surrogacy in the first place. Um, now, notice quickly, I told you we'd get out early. Oh, we probably won't. Verse 5. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. Ah, now it's so proper. Okay, rolling up the sleeves, blaming someone else, right? I am so glad we don't do this anymore. Aren't you? So glad we don't do this anymore. I mean, whenever I make a mistake, I am quick to blame me and not the people around me, right? I mean, the way I vote is to see to it that I am to blame for my mistakes and that I don't blame the other party. I, 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 don't, I don't blame a group of people. I don't blame other identities. I don't do any of that. That is not my politics, right? Of course not. This is the way we all function. Now, does this story sound familiar? Can you think of a story in Genesis, just, giving, just, just to narrow it down, where someone sins and blames someone else? Adam and Eve. Adam, how'd you know you were naked? Well, God, before you get mad at me, okay, okay, first of all, calm down because that always works when you say that. You need to know that woman you gave me, not my wife, not my bride, not Eve, that woman, because that always fixes the situation when you call your wife that woman. She gave me the fruit and I ate. Never mind, it was his teeth, his jaws, his esophagus, and his stomach that digested the food. He chose to take and receive and to eat. Hey, she hadn't given it to me. <laughs> now we wouldn't be in this mess. What did she do? Now, now, God, you need to calm down. If, that, if, if you didn't put that serpent here, that means really your fault, God. Okay. All right? So what does God do? It's all right. Let's start. You're going to crawl on the floor. Eve, you're guilty. Adam, you're guilty. What's Sarah doing? Sarah is, is, is I'm, I'm wounded, I'm afflicted, I'm bitter, I'm jealous. It's got to be someone else's fault. This is blame shifting. Do we do this as a society? Obviously, we do this as a society. Obviously. We could burn down a building and say, I can't believe those people on the other end of the nation made me do that. The left and the right are doing that. We'll storm a capital and say, I can't believe New York made me do that. Hey, I, can't, I can't believe that entire people group made me throw that Molotov cocktail at that black-owned business. Can't believe it. Can't believe it. I, I, it's just not fair that they made me do that. They do this all the time. You're rich. You owe me more. This is our society is being built on this. We would do well to learn the 10th commandment of do not covet. So she blames Abram. Um, but notice what, what happens. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May Yahweh, may the Lord judge between you and me. What she is doing is she is surrendering her rights to Hagar, giving her over to Abraham. Now he is the one with the authority. So that relationship has changed legally and personally. And so by conceiving, Hagar is held to a higher position than she was before, which is what Hagar wanted. Anyone who's a slave would, would want this. 
But notice um, is that yeah, it's verse six. Abram said to Sarah, "Behold, your servant is in your power. Do you as do to her as you please." Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. That word "harshly" has appeared before in Genesis. It was in the previous chapter. I didn't write down the the, the exact verse. It is in the prophecy part that is used to describe how the Egyptians will harshly treat the Jews. You see the irony of this passage? This Jewish woman harshly treats the Egyptian. Exodus opens up with Egyptians harshly treating the Jews. Isn't the Bible well written? I I just love love, love this stuff. Um, And this is the patriarchs. So, she deals harshly with her. She fled from her. Now, Abraham is surrendering his legal right over Hagar. So, so Sarai surrenders over to Abraham. Abraham responds not with leadership, much like Adam, but by surrendering his right over to, to her back to Sarai. And um, so now, he is not protecting her. As the head of the house, that would be his responsibility. Not to mention, she is theologically... His wife. He's failing. Remember, Adam failed as prophet, priest, and king. He did not protect his wife. He did not protect the garden, all that. Um, And there at the end of verse 6, she fled from her. Remember, Hagar means to flee. It's not the same word. I looked it up. From what I can tell, the the word fled here is not the same Hebrew word as Hagar, uh, which is weird that Hagar is a Hebrew name, not an Egyptian name. So her name may have changed, but... Or we may be getting the Hebrew version of her Egyptian name. But it's not the same name, so I don't know what to do. The same word, but I don't know what to do with it. But um, it's not surprising that the one named Flea, when she becomes the enemy of, of Abraham and Sarah, she runs. And remember, Adam and Eve go east of the garden. She presumably is going west of Canaan. She's running. And next week, we'll meet our good friend, the angel of the Lord. And what the angel of the Lord does for Hagar and Ishmael, I think will really surprise you. And it gives us some real insight into the gospel. All right, told you we get out a little early, so maybe we'll get out 10 minutes early. Any thoughts you guys have here? It's a great text. I mean, it's a tragic text, but it's really good stuff.